Hey, and thank you for clicking to listen to this episode. It was great to read so many applications already from podcast listeners to the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. My colleague Helen will get back to you to set up interviews and so on. It was really uh, brilliant to get to know you slightly better through just even reading the applications. And I look forward to meeting many of you in person or online once the programme starts. If you haven't applied yet and you want to, you have time until the 7th of March. You'll get a senior leader mentor, a really awesome group of peers, structured career development support. And if you happen to have a partner, you'll also get workshops with him or her. And most importantly, you will get time to think about what you want in your career and family life and how to get there. If you want to get involved or you know someone who deserves support, you can find everything on leadersplus.org.uk. Let's get stuck into the episode. That if you see your career as the, the lesser party, purely based on how much money it costs or earns rather, then already you've loaded the dice against that person further developing their career. And so you get locked into this negative spiral of it's the lesser career and therefore it's invested in less and therefore it doesn't thrive and therefore it will always be the lesser career. And we've seen it in a load of other things that I think we've, you know, we've dwelt on that when you look at childcare costs, the number of times we've heard, and this is again very gender normative, but we've heard women say, we looked at the cost of childcare and it wasn't worth me going back to work. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti, and I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, and that leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organisations. We must change this. And I hope that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Thank you for listening. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. You can find out all about our work on the website and the best way to be kept in touch with things is the newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. Obviously, many parents are solo parents, but I get asked very often how to make it work when you are in a couple relationship and you both want to have a big career. There is no right way of combining a big career with young children as a couple, but I thought a good thing to do would be to invite a real life couple, so to speak, who both have big careers onto the podcast and invite them to share what has worked for them and what they're still working on, what's involved. I know this is very personal and no two couples are the same, so please don't see this as the only way to make this work. But I hope that you are going to gain a lot from hearing Tom and Catherine share their experience. And I really want to thank them for being so open and honest and letting me rope them in. Catherine is a Leaders Plus fellow, so I am. Um, yeah, <laughs> she was very generous to say yes to this. And on a side note, I do mention quite a few resources and they're all on one page on the website leadersplus.org.uk forward slash couples. Enjoy the conversation. So let's start with you introducing yourself, what you do for work and who's in your family. And if we start with you, Tom. 
Sure. So my name is Tom Bashford. I'm an anaesthetist working in Cambridge, uh, Adam Brooks Hospital. And then half of my life is spent working at the University of Cambridge as an academic uh, with an interest in health systems. So I'm based in Cambridge and in our family, there's myself, my wife, Kat, and two little boys, Fred and Sam. Fred is eight and Sam is five, very shortly to turn six and very excited about it. Lovely. Kat? Um, yep. So I'm Catherine Muge, um, Kat, and I work as Director of Partnership Intelligence at UNICEF UK. And I have the same children as Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's helpful to clarify. Thank you very much. Let's dig a bit into the combining of a big career with, with young children as a couple. And I would like to ask you what you used to believe about combining a big career with young children that you don't believe anymore. When we were thinking over this, one of the things that, that came out for me was I always, we always, I always very much wanted children. But we had some fertility problems, not of the scale that some people have, but we did have fertility problems that meant that we couldn't have children immediately. And they sure as hell weren't a surprise when they turned up. They took a, quite a lot of effort. But with me, some of it was I so desperately wanted children. I didn't almost dare think about how it might be when it happened, because it almost felt like it was something too special to imagine. And let's just say that approach did not serve me well on a number of levels. So I think one of the things was I actually didn't think hugely about it before it happened. And I think the other thing for me was because I so wanted children and that was going to be such a special thing and such a joy, I think I didn't think through the level of work they might involve. And, you know, that's not to say some of that work isn't joyful, that isn't to say I, I don't like doing it, but I think I just... I hadn't thought through the fact that, you know, we were going to hopefully have two small people who, to begin with, could do nothing, <laughs> uh, you know, for, for really quite a long time. How do you feel, Tom? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm all of that. But I think the taking it from a different angle, there's this question of kind of interdependence of you as a couple, which I think only for us played out once we had children, in that we'd always had full careers. You know, Kat was building her career in the third sector. And I was a junior doctor and life was busy and we did lots of other things. And there was always capacity. So like when you had to work harder, you just worked harder. You know, if you had to stay up late, you just stayed up late. If you had to work over the weekend, you worked over the weekend. If there was an interesting trip somewhere exotic, you went. And because it was the same for both of us and we knew it was part of each other's character and part of the reason why we fell in love with each other, it was never a problem because you just kept pushing. And so in a way you never reached your ceiling of, appetite for work or ability to work when things came up and opportunities arose you just leapt at them kind of knowing the other one would back you and I think what suddenly happens when you have kids is that you reach the limit of capacity very quickly and then all of a sudden you realize that everything that you want to do comes at the cost to the other person because there's an amount of third there's a third career of child rearing which is suddenly in your control and unless you are like non-sleeping superhumans you hit your capacity within the first few months. And I think that's suddenly interesting where you have to realise that you can't progress your career by simply taking every single little opportunity that comes your way and chasing everything down to the level of perfection that you might have wanted. And in a way, it forces you to be much more strategic and much more ruthless and say, well, I will do that and it will be a pain and it will create more work for my other half. And it will mean I'm not there at bedtime and that will be bad for the children. And I will only do that if there is a very clear 
deliverable that's going to come from that, which is worth that cost. And I think we never really had to take a kind of cost benefit approach to careers before kids. And we did immediately afterwards. And I think it's that you realise you are so interdependent Mm. um, that now whenever any of us takes on something extra, we know we have to come and negotiate with the other person. And Tom got offered something a couple of months ago and we talked about it and he didn't do it eventually, not because it wouldn't be interesting and it wouldn't be good for his career, but it was almost, if you do that, something else in our family is going to give. And what's that going to be? Because, you know, we don't have close family members who live nearby who can almost step in as a third parent. The approach we've chosen is we don't want to employ a nanny or an au pair to be almost that kind of third caregiver. So the caregivers are us, like with loads of friends, you know, people help out the whole time, but the principal caregivers are us. So if Tom's not spinning the plate that is our children, I need to be spinning the plate that is our children. And we have to be able to hand that plate very carefully to each other. So if someone goes off and does something else, someone else has to look after the plate. And also we shouldn't forget that um, there's a huge amount of joy in holding that plate together. And if we're always just handing over to children to dash off and, and, and go and do something else, then you also miss out on a lot of the joy. But I think that level of, it's not so much asking permission, but but it, it is that interconnectedness of career that I no longer have the autonomy just to say yes to things at work. And I don't expect to have it because I can't necessarily speak on Kat's behalf. And some of that, I think, becomes quite a powerful communication tool at work, especially when you're talking about changing workplace culture then I think it takes some of my colleagues by surprise when they say Tom will you take on this role and say not until I've gone and spoken to my wife and worked out if we can do that and I think there's kind of this occasionally raised eyebrows of all you know do do you need to ask permission and it's about saying well no no it's we need to broker whether that is an acceptable new level of work for our unit because I'm not an island and I cannot just choose to take on that work and live with the consequences myself it has ripple effects and I think part of that is representing to your workplace that raising a family is another job which you have taken on and that means you won't say yes to everything that comes your way or and you won't be strong-armed into taking on things that are not viable one thing that was powerful for us is a a couple of years ago we started and this is a bit this is slightly cringe we started sometimes talking about our family in terms of our family is our mutual enterprise our family is like our small business our family it's a piece of work. It's a project we manage together and it has to be given time and resource. And we have to really clearly communicate that between us. Is everyone happy with the time and resource and the balance that's going into that mutual project? And it should be emphasised that we balls that up on a weekly occurrence. Like <laughs> We are not speaking from any position of perfection. We just know what we should be doing in the same way I know that I should not be eating chocolate biscuits and I should be exercising more. But I don't do those things in the same way that we know we now have a very clear idea of the best way to manage this unit. We don't get that right all the time. But also, I think one last, we are also aware, I think, that we also have a lot of privilege. So we have each other and we're raising this family as a duo. And I think raising children on your own is a whole different ball game. And I have so much respect for people who do that because managing that level of work must be unbelievable. And also we're lucky that we've both been lucky in our careers and, and we're in positions where we're comfortable financially. And that gives us freedom to, you know, outsource some things, pay for some things. So um we're not sitting here playing the world's smallest violin and saying we've we've got it hard. There are things that do make this easier for us that would make it harder for other people. Mm. Absolutely. I want to take you back to the beginning of this joint enterprise. 
Do you remember the moment when you decided to go for share parental leave, which for the listeners who are outside of the UK, it's you can basically share out the maternity leave and the partner who's not on maternity leave, i.e. often the man, then can do a few months of that. And you did that. Can you remember the moment when you made that decision and what it was like? I think the interesting thing is we can't remember that moment because it was always our assumption, which is super interesting because we've been together for a really, a really long time. We were together for a long time before we had children. So we had a long time of getting to know each other. And, you know, I'm always very clear about the fact I'm I'm a feminist and, you know, Tom self-identifies as a feminist as well. And so we had children a, a tiny bit later than some of our immediate peers. And when we looked around our peer group at that time, everyone was doing it. You know, when uh, if you look at our close friends who had kids in, in the year or so before us, the men always did it. And it was interesting that when we took shared parental leave for the first time, which now was what, you know, nine, nine years ago, it was under a fairly newish policy at that time. I know the policy's changed since. And I remember thinking almost kind of, oh, well, this is great. We're going to be the thin end of the wedge. Now this policy's changed. You know, everyone, everyone's going to do this. Why wouldn't you do this? And so obviously it's become rapid, rapidly apparent that hasn't happened and that isn't the case. But for us, it felt just like a given that that would be what we would do. Hmm. Makes sense. And you alluded earlier, Tom, to assumptions that people do have about a working father. What do people say to you when you said, oh, by the way, I'm doing share parental leave now? So for me, it was almost universally positive, I think. And I was very lucky. The two, well, I mean, there are some standout things. Firstly, working for the NHS. And at the time, I was wholly NHS employee rather than split with, between the university and the NHS. But I think, you know, the NHS is a great big organisation. So as soon as it became law and they knew it was a policy that had to be done, it would be possible. You know, and you might face little hurdles, but I knew that it would work because generally, if it's a national policy, they will find a way of making it work because there'll be enough people that ensure it's done. And then the other thing is that my, so I suppose there's three things. The other thing is that my speciality in anaesthetics has historically been far more family friendly than other medical specialities, particularly what we call the craft specialities, where it's very manual. You know, it's much harder. Surgery still has a culture that's very different. And it's partly because of the way we work and the way our work is structured. But anaesthetics has always been very forgiving of people saying, I'm going away on maternity leave and I'm going to come back in a year or nine months time. And, and that's well worn. And then finally, one of my colleagues had just taken shared parental leave as a man in the trust that I was working in as an anaesthetist in training as I was then. And so that became very trivial because they said, oh, you're doing the same thing as Matt. And Matt basically said, talk to this person in HR because she and I worked through it together. We've walked through the policy together. We've worked it all out together. She now knows what to do. And so, of course, I went and found her and it was straightforward because she knew exactly the dance that we had to go through to get things signed off. So from an institutional perspective, it was very straightforward. From a clinical workplace perspective, it was very straightforward. I think academically, actually, I had enormous support from my professor of anaesthesia at the time. That was also partly luck that I was at a particular stage of my academic training where that was easier. And there are bits of academia that are very, very difficult to take time off from. And so I think I was fortunate to be at a point where it did not cause a problem. And we could talk about my two experiences of shared parental leave, which came at different points and therefore were differently difficult. And 
the problem with academic work is that you're often on a fixed term grant. And while you can take time out, because that's the law, you cannot extend the window of that grant. So you don't get the chance to carry over any salary that you've lost or any time that you've given up. So if you're being paid on a three-year grant, you can take a year off in the middle, but you can't then run out your year of it at the end because the whole grant has finished. So again, I'm very, very aware that I was at a fortunate point where everybody involved in that ecosystem said, that's a brilliant idea and of course you should do it. But it wouldn't have taken very much for me to have been in a very, very, very analogous position, either clinically or chronologically slightly out of kilter, and I might have got a really different set of responses. And interestingly, there was one time after our first child when we both, when we'd finished our shared parental leave, and we both wanted to go back to work part time. So we both wanted to go back to work four days a week so we could each spend a day a week looking after our son. And that works out fine for me. Throughout the period of both of our children, I've been with the same employer, the employer I'm with now, and they're amazingly family friendly. And now uniquely have a shared parental leave that doesn't give greater advantage to one gender of parent over the other. And so I was fine. I went four days a week and that was fine. Tom went four days a week, but Tom was working on a clinical rotor, which meant he could never have guaranteed to have the same day a week off, which meant we still had to pay for all the childcare. And if you're paying for childcare and if you just come off a shift and you're tired and no one's done the washing and it's quite hard to say, no, I'm going to keep the baby today. And so despite the very best of our intentions, when we went back after shared parental leave, I was taking a day off a week to look after our son and Tom wasn't. And one of the interesting things in, in retrospect, and I don't know how you feel, Tom, is that I wonder if Tom had been a woman and had said, I want to come back full day, you know, at 80 percent and have a day a week to look after my child. I wonder if he would have had a different reception for that request for a constant day off. I think I definitely would. I definitely would. Because I look at female colleagues who've done exactly that. And so I just don't work Tuesdays and Wednesdays. That's my pattern. And I didn't even know I could advocate for that. And I think with no ill intention from anyone, you know, my employers and my, my employing deanery were supportive. But when they said, oh, look, this is just the pattern and this is how it works, I just sort of rolled over and said, oh, that's just you know part of being a medic. It's a bit rubbish. You know, at least I've got my shared parental, you know, at least I've got my less than full time working. And actually, I started asking around and then all of my colleagues who were also less than full time because it's well established. They said, oh, no, no, I have my Wednesdays protected because that's my day with my child. And I thought, missed the trick here because I just didn't know that I could argue for it. That's so interesting. And. It speaks to the different expectations. And, and in a way, you have to be more of a pioneer if you're working flexibly as a man than as a woman quite often because of the way the world is set up. And you described that there were bits of, you know, it was quite a massive thing to set up share parentally from a logistics perspective and all the forms. And I know things still, even today, nine years on, are not much better. I'm interested, was it worth it, do you think, for the family? Um and if yes, why? Enormously worth it. Enormously worth it. And on reflection, we saw shared parental leave as, if you like, the obvious and right thing to do because we both got time with our child and it was equal and neither party then took a very big hit in terms of career progression. So many good reasons. But what stands out on reflection is that you begin at a equal platform in terms of 
capability of child rearing. And so by the end of the whole year, we had both had long days with the child on our own. We had both been, interestingly, we had both been the parent at work coming back to a frazzled partner. And we had both been the frazzled partner waiting for the one to come back from work. And that is a very powerful insight we've had both sides of. We had both been up all night. We had both been the one who was on nappy duty. We had both been the one at home with a sick, feverish kid. We'd both done the weaning. We'd both done the potty training. We'd, we'd both done all of it. We'd both been to coffee mornings and baby groups and worked out how to fill long, lonely days with a child who won't be put down. And it meant that going into their life after that first year, when you start childminders and nanny, not nannies, but childminders and nurseries and things, there was no question that both of us could settle Fred. Both of us could manage Fred. Both of us could pick up Fred. It was never a case that he will only go to his mum. It was never a case that he only wants his dad. It was never the case that, well, you know, the childminder will only call Cat if he's poorly because they knew that if it was my day, it was me. And it was Tom. Tom was the one that did the settling back into childcare, mm. right? Which is a really interesting one because I've never settled a child in childcare. I have two children. And with each of our kids, I took the first period because we wanted to breastfeed our children. And regretfully, that is one thing Tom cannot do. The first period, Tom always took the, the second stint. And it meant Tom settled both of our kids into childcare, which is interesting because, you know, when I manage people at work who are going through that experience, I have to remember that's one I haven't had. And I think. It's really interesting, um, Brenna. I know you're well aware of the work of Tina Miller and the research she's done in this area, you know, sociologist at, at Oxford Brooks, around the trouble being that men literally don't develop these skills. And they are skills of looking after children. And it meant that when we both went back to work, those tasks associated with our, our lovely son didn't automatically fall to me because Tom could do them too. I think what went on to cause us trouble, you know, being honest, is we then started bringing up our wonderful children in a society, in a paradigm that still assumes that women do the bulk of the caring. And so I still now get phoned first by school. I got phoned a couple of uh, months ago about the fact, you know, Fred was ill at school and I had to kind of nicely say, well, I'm in London and I'm in a meeting, but his dad's at home. So can you ring him? And they're great about it. You know, no one's ever fussy about it, but it's still that assumption that the woman primarily does the caregiving. And, and when your child starts school, all of the party invitations go to the mum. You know, so many defaults default towards the woman. People ask you what the Christmas present should be. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, I love Tom's family beyond belief. They're such a wonderful addition to my life. But they believe Tom is inadequate of answering questions about gifts for children <laughs> and so one of the things we've had to do along the way of our young family is to have moments where we've said hold on this has got a bit unbalanced and we need to set that again because at times when the caring burden has become unbalanced that has not worked well for us you know I've felt really resentful I've felt incredibly stressed I felt quite envious of Tom with his head not full of, you know, has Fred got his swimming kit and have we bought a present for that party? And and we've had to really consciously think we took shared parental leave because we wanted to share this care burden, care burden equally and this care joy equally. There is a joy in that care. And we want to carry on doing that as our children grow up and society and other people's expectations. I think is not necessarily geared that way. 
I think there's an important point out of that as well that we've wrestled with that you do also have to shoulder some of the particularities of your other partner. And so we've come up with this mantra that basically if it's important to one of us, it has to be important to both of us. And that is sometimes harder work than others because, you know, put bluntly, I would buy a cupboard full of the same toys and give them to every child whose birthday party we had to go to. And Kat will say, no, we can't do that because, you know, that child should have a particular special present or, you know, everyone's been given okay. that present. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that bad. No, but you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but there are many yeah. dimensions to our life where your standards are higher than mine. Um, but equally, and, one of the things we established is Tom is way more attentive to stuff around the house than I am. And he'll be getting angsty about something around the house. And I'll be thinking, like cleaning. anyway, let's move on. And, and I'll be thinking, that doesn't really matter, does it? And so one of the things we've had to say is, even if you don't quite get it, if it's important for the other person, then within reason, it's important to both of us. And the other thing we've also, I, we've also had to do, and I'm going to say I think it's more of an issue for me than Tom, especially when we had our, our most, most, most recent moment of rebalancing after the COVID pandemic, was saying, when Tom and I do the same task, he is going to do that differently. And I need to be okay with that because I can't expect him to do something the way I would do it. And if I want everything to be done the way I want it to be done, then that's me taking on a bulk of the caring burden. And if I'm good with that, I'm good with that. I have to take that. But if I want us to share it, it means he's going to do some things differently and that's okay. Mm. And sometimes that's so hard to just let go, isn't it? Because if you want to share it equally, you cannot keep everything to yourself. And did you have any judgment from people, Catherine, about the fact that you weren't on top of the washing or that you weren't the one who was picking up the, the kids from school every day? Did you have any lopsided expectations thrown at you because you do have that more balanced arrangement? Mm. I mean, I think you do get a lot of assumptions. I think those assumptions have rarely come with judgment. And, you know, especially when I think about how wonderful Tom's parents have been to me, you know, his parents have had quite a traditionally gendered relationship. And me popping up with Tom and playing things very differently, I think, I mean, I don't know if they've struggled with it or not, but they've always been completely non-judgmental and, and understanding. I think, you know, being honest, one of the main problems I've had is how I've felt about it, that, you know, I'm really aware that this equal care, this equal care arrangement we have is comparatively new, right? I mean, when Tom and I think about our grandparents, none of our grandmothers worked. You know, when we think about our mothers, our mothers either didn't work or they followed the career of, you know, very much had a minor career to the man. And in this generation, I'm there saying, I'm not going to do all of that stuff that's traditionally associated with the role of a mother. I'm going to do other stuff and that's going to be fine. And I think one of my subconscious things was, am I in some way a less good mother? Am I somehow doing the role of mother less? And am I somehow doing my children a, a disservice by not being everything? by not serving them as, as wholly as I, I could. And I think so much of that is subconscious and comes in, you know, you know the, the literature you read and the adverts you see. And so I think the main criticism I've had really is this niggling sense from myself of, I should be doing that really, I should be over that really. 
And I think associated with that as well is um, sometimes I feel very uncomfortable saying to Tom, actually, we're going to impede your career a little bit so that my career does okay. And that's felt particularly difficult at times when Tom's career has been going very well. Because there's, there's, you know, definitely been times when I look back over the time we've had young children where maybe my career hasn't gone quite how I was expecting or how I wanted. And when one person's career is going all in the right direction, it's going really well. And when you as the woman, yours is less, still saying, actually, no, even though you might be more senior than me or you might be in a better position than me, we're still going to say my career should have equal weight in our relationship. And I think that's quite a key thing for couples with children, because I think really frequently, if you don't split shared maternity leave, you know, if you, if you don't do the, the split, you do end up that the father has the more senior job that pays the more money, you know, that is doing better. And it's the mother that doesn't. And I think in that position as as mother, and, and sorry, I'm completely taking a gender normative approach to parenting. But in that position is the person whose career is going less well, perhaps because you've taken sacrifices to have children, saying, even though you're more senior, I want us to pay as much attention to my career as we do to yours. That can feel very selfish and feel really quite uncomfortable. I think it plays in as well that it's one of the things we've seen a lot and spoken about a lot, that that imbalance in careers is also often a causative agent in people not taking SPL. Like the number of times we've spoken to people and they said, well, we would have split it, but he earns so much more than me, it just wasn't worth it. And you think, well, then there's no way back from that. That if you see your career as the the lesser party, purely based on how much money it earns rather, then already you've loaded the dice against that person further developing their career. And so you get locked into this negative spiral of it's the lesser career and therefore it's invested in less and therefore it doesn't thrive and therefore it will always be the lesser career. And we've seen it in a load of other things that I think we've, you know, we've, we've dwelt on that when you look at childcare costs, the number of times we've heard, and this is again, very gender normative, but we've heard women say, we looked at the cost of childcare and it wasn't worth me going back to work. And then you say, well, what are the costs in your life? Do you directly only trade off against your salary? Because normally, when you look at your mortgage, you look how much your car costs, you look at your sum total income, and then you look at that outgoing as a function of that total income, and you decide whether you want to spend the money. But all of a sudden, when people look at it at childcare, it becomes a trade-off of the woman's salary versus the cost of the childcare. And they say, well, we'd be losing money if I went back to work. And you're like, yes, but you'd have a career that could still in the future become something more and give you something more of who you are. But you've already got locked into this death spiral whereby lesser career, less money, less important, not worth going back to work, would end up just paying more money to somebody else. And then you're like, that career is done. Yes. How do you claw that back without a major upheaval? And it becomes impossible. And it's worth saying, one of the things we've also wrestled with, and I think, you know, we we nudge your way through is that, that none of this is to say that a completely traditional gender normative model is wrong. Like we have both often said that if one of you really wants a job and doesn't want anything to do with the house and child rearing, and the other one really wants to keep house, that is a brilliant model for a happy life. Because if that's what you both want, actually that makes life really straightforward because you've got two jobs and you're both doing one of them. And in a way, ours is a much more spoiled model. We've both said, well, actually we would like a lovely, fulfilling, happy home life and we'd both like a job. And that's just greedy because we want three jobs between two. 
So I have complete sympathy for the people who don't want any of that and are not interested in equal careers because they just don't want it. And you're like, that's fine. It's only an issue if that's not what you want, but you find yourself being played into it by a sequential series of decisions that inexorably lead you to one outcome that you didn't necessarily want to get to. We also, there are some bits of our life and our careers and our, our home life, which you might characterize as being completely traditional. You know, it's worked out that Kat really likes doing a lot of the cooking and will happily spend an afternoon making a big meal. And it's really important that we keep talking about that and saying this is not an expectation. It's not because you're the mother and the woman that that's your role. It's because you've chosen that role. And if you want to get rid of it, then I will take on the cooking. It's not an expectation. But I think it's quite interesting when you find yourself just double checking that where you're at with all of those roles and responsibilities is where you want to be and not just a habit you've fallen into because you're you're pushed there by the rest of the world. So interesting to hear you talk about all this analysis, which you clearly have done. And it really impresses me that you've done it because you're both very busy, like we discussed. Is there anything that you've learned about making sure that you do, like practically, how do you make sure that you reflect? I mean, whoever has time for a conversation with their partner that isn't about Laundry Laundry. Laundry is quite dominating at the moment. I don't know why. (laughs) I mean, I think one of the the points to make is I think this hasn't come easy and it isn't always pretty. We've had some really difficult conversations. You know, it's hard to sit around a kitchen table and calmly find a way to say, I think you're taking me for granted and I feel really resentful of that. And so, you know, we don't sit there in sweetness and light and merrily do an Excel spreadsheet and it all works out wonderfully. So at times when we've discussed these things, it has been emotional and it has been difficult and we've had to have a couple of goes at it. On a really practical level, um, what we did after the COVID pandemic, because during COVID, Tom was working clinically very intensively and we ended up in a far more traditional gender balance in terms of work and, and childcare. And I think we realised we both, well, we realised we both weren't happy with that. I think we both weren't happy with it because I sure as hell wasn't happy and I wasn't expressing that very constructively. You know, I was just quite resentful and a bit huffy. Really. But it wasn't the family we wanted to be. We, no. We weren't where we wanted to be. And so what we did, which makes us sound like complete fun sponges, is we, first of all, we wrote a list of all of the tasks associated with our mutual enterprise. So we wrote a list of all the jobs we did and we had like a piece of a4 on on our fridge and over the course of a couple of weeks we broke down every single task that we did and that was quite revealing in itself because almost under washing perhaps where tom might have just written washing i wrote kind of collecting the washing sorting the washing doing the washing hanging the washing taking it down drying the washing sorting the like there was a lot of work involved in washing and also tom wrote down some stuff he did around the house which, to be honest, had just passed me by. I didn't realise he was doing it. And so um, and so that was super helpful. And then we went through and we ticked who did most of it. And that was really interesting because a couple of the tasks, we both ticked that we did most of it. And that, you know, led to a discussion. Course comment. Then, yeah. course and then we worked out how do we want to do it going forward? And we tried to account for our preferences and things we like. Like, I do really like cooking. I find it completely de-stresses me. It's my happy place. So it was a really obvious one that I did that task for our family. And then there were some tasks that neither of us wanted. And so we did that. We have not stuck to that rigidly, but it's been quite helpful. 
And also what we put in place at the same time is we have a week, we have a shared to-do list associated with our mutual enterprise, which has things on it like find a plumber, you know, book Sam's birthday party, all of those things associated with our house and kids and our family. And um, once a week, being, you know, really transparent, we plug our kids into their iPads and they sit on the sofa and have their tablet time. And Tom and I sit down and have a cup of tea and look at the week ahead and think about what's going on and try to make a real moment to say, how are you? How is this? You know, how's your mental health at the moment? And that's a really clumsy question. But, you know, it's not something that comes up easily in conversation, is it? But really explicitly saying, how is this? How are you? Thank you so much for sharing so openly. And actually talking about mental health and, and well-being, I think, being a parent and doing so much work, mental health has to be an important part of the conversation. Do you think you working reasonably equally has an impact on you finding time for yourself, looking after yourselves? Or how do you make that work, looking after yourself within the constellation of the couple and work and family? Interestingly, it remains probably the nut that we are trying to crack at the moment, I'd say, in that particularly things like taking exercise and time for yourself is at the moment is almost the hardest bit to broker around life. And obviously everything else is in a bit of dynamic flux, but in general, we're on an even keel in terms of work and life and kids and balance and who collects them and who looks after them and who puts them to bed and all of this stuff. We're, there's still wrinkles, but it's it's okay. We are trying to get to a place where both of us feel completely entitled, and entitled is a tricky word, but able to say, okay, Saturday morning, weather's nice, I'm off for a run, I'll see you in an hour, and go. And for the other one to let them go without obvious envy and resentment, and for them to take that without, you know, crushing guilt and I think it's one of the things we talked about a lot is how you give with grace because put bluntly on your Saturday morning you really do not want your co-parent to slope off for a run for an hour because it is purely them like there's no kickback for the team other than in the long game and so it's just a give and ultimately we know that what's better is both of you give with grace so when one of you says I'm going for a run you say that's completely fine have fun the kids and I are going to do craft you then can say, I really need to just go for a walk or I'm going to go off for a climb or that's what I need to do. That's then okay because it was given with grace the first time. Interestingly, we've got it much better in terms of evenings. Like if one of us wants to go to the pub with other friends or catch up or go out for dinner, that's become quite an easy broker because we've got that right. I think something about almost the other aspect of self-care and exercise and time for personal reflection, taking yourself off for a walk in the countryside it's the last bit that we're, well, I think we're close, but we're still working on that, I think. And I think a slight complication we've had is, um, obviously, while we have a huge amount of, of privilege, one of the assistances we haven't had is we don't have close family nearby. And also, both of our children are atrocious sleepers and are really tricky to get settled at, at night. And so we were never in the model where we could get a babysitter because that just didn't work for our unit and to be blunt you know our kids are 
five and eight and it still doesn't really work we have to get the children asleep and then we can go out and and by that point to be honest you're losing the will to live by that Everyone time. Everyone's too tired. There's no benefit. We sometimes make the pub at the end of the road, but that's as yeah. far as our, as our ambition takes us. Yeah. And so I'm aware that I think if you do, you know, if you do have children who will happily go to sleep with someone else, or if you do have family around, I think, wow, you know, utilise that. Because yeah. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. Slight, the slight challenge we have is if one of us takes some time, that puts an additional burden on the other one automatically because someone has to hold the spinning plate if they could get around to playing grandpas for an hour and a half on a saturday and we both just had an hour and a half to go for a run or go for a climb or do something else we wouldn't have to navigate the guilt and resentment exactly exactly <laughs> you're not you're not asking something more of somebody else exactly apart from grand grandpa who to be honest love it and wish they <laughs> so no one's unhappy in that scenario but unfortunately you know, our lives have worked out wonderfully for many reasons, but that isn't where we've ended. Yeah, geography's against us. Hmm. Thank you so much for being so open about this being still a work in progress. And, and I can really relate. I think it's almost a, for me, it's the two sided sword of having a reasonably equal relationship. That also means that both of you feel like they have to always be on. And it's much harder to say, well, actually, no, I'm watching Netflix for an hour now. Mm. I'm not going for a run here like that. I'm very impressed that that's your ambition. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's uh, definitely not not straightforward. Uh, obviously, this podcast is about career progression, and I know that's something you're both interested in. And I'm, you alluded to it, but I just want to unpick. Do you think the share parental leave and this reasonably equal setup that you have, do you think that meant that uh, as a collective, both of you, you've actually progressed less in your careers? Do you think you'd be in a different place if you had had a more traditional setup or if you had one lead caregiver and one lead breadwinner I mean I think Tom can talk more about the general picture of this but one thing I'm very aware of is between my children I was reluctant to change jobs because I'd lose my maternity entitlements and I think that's a big thing about you know maternity entitlement as a day one right with many employers when you start work for them you have to work for them for six months before you get your full you know, maternity package. So, I mean, a really boring point from the point of view of policy and advocacy and the kind of things we should be lobbying for is that if you are a woman who's trying to have a child, and if like me, that takes you a couple of years, the couple of years when I was trying to have a child and a couple of years between children, it was financially against me to change jobs in case I fell pregnant in the period in which I wouldn't have qualified for enhanced maternity entitlement. So I know um, you've probably got some thoughts, Tom, on kind of the more general point, but I think it's a really important point to note that our legislation still works against equal kind of roles in parenting. And I, I think that's that's a real shame that we're still here now. Hmm. There's two ways to look at that. If you took our career progression as an average between Kat and I, I'm very confident that we are much further ahead than we would have been had one of us just taken the year off. Because I think there's something about both being able to nudge your careers forward. And, and there's almost a drop off that, you know, if you take six months of parental leave, you can do the odd little bit, keep in touch with the odd thing, just keep your toe in. And then when you come back, you're up to speed and flying quicker than if you've taken 12 months and you're trying to claw your way back into a headspace in a, in a workplace. So I think we both lost less because individually it was shorter and so I think if you took our some average career progression it's further ahead and I think 
it's really interesting as well because your life goals change. So I've no doubt that if I had not taken any shared parental leave and if we had a completely unbalanced relationship where it was all about my career, I would have done more things, been to more interesting things, done a bit, few more projects here, there. Would I be tangibly in a different job? I don't think so. You know, I think the major milestones would still have been hit. And I think that's probably true for Kat too. She may have got to where she is a little bit earlier, which you now, you know, you could argue then, are we a bit frame shifted further back? Maybe, but I think we're rapidly, you rapidly reach a, a similar vanishing point to where you'd have got to. I don't, I don't think there's been a major deficit. And there are two things there, I think. One is that we had kids comparatively late. So our careers were well established before we went to SPL. And I think that makes a big difference because it's much easier if you have already broken through several grades to then come back and progress. Whereas if you have your kids earlier, I think it's very, it is easier to chop your career off at the knees. So although there are downsides to having kids later, I think probably career protection is, is one of them. And I think also we've had this model where our jobs are not just jobs. They're very vocational. We both do what we do because we believe in it and because we're passionate about it. And that partly goes back to my point right at the beginning about finding more time and finding more capacity. That doesn't leave. And so I think as our kids have got older, and, you know, frankly, one of the reasons why we find it hard to find time at the weekend to go for a run is because neither of us are taking an hour's lunch break to go to the gym. Because when we're at work, we're caning it because we love it and we're very immersed in our work. And so, again, I think any gap that there would have been is being rapidly chased down by our natural high pay alpha over competitiveness that is just chasing down stuff. And then I think the third point to make is that when you drop in your family and you conceptualize it as a third career, you've suddenly got another career to do well at. And I'm very happy with the model that I will have got less far in one career if the other one's gone better. And so if you start looking at those three careers as the average that you're trying to get further, it matters a lot less to me if I was two career grades further on or had published 20 more papers or had done some other amazing stuff. It doesn't matter because what matters more is that the family's in a good place and Kat's career is in a good place and that the satisfaction is in the average, not in the individual. Mm. And I think I had someone say something wise to me recently that, yes, you have to do it all, but that's because you got it all. You know, if you told me 20, 25 years ago, oh, God, it's going to be dreadful for you. You have to have these two amazing children. You have to have this career which you're passionate about and you enjoy. Wow, isn't your life going to be terrible? You know, the things that make us tired and make us grumpy are also the things that give us immense joy. And I guess one of the things that helps me without being, you know, Pollyanna-ish about it is to remember, wow, how lucky am I? Like, isn't this amazing? I, I we did choose all this. We did. We chose all of this. And in fact, some of it is, is beyond what I could have dreamt of, right? Some of, you know, I, I have this amazing relationship. I have these wonderful children. I have this, I have this career. And yeah, that means I do have to feel like I'm doing 15 loads of laundry a week. And, and that does mean I've got wrinkles on my wrinkles because I don't get enough sleep between everything. But that's because I get so much amazing, awesome stuff to do. And that's a joy and a privilege. And a final point on that is that I am damn certain we're raising the two boys to be feminists. And how do you do that? Well, first, you show them that career women have careers as important and as busy and as stressful and as time consuming as men. So that mummy is just as likely to be late back from work because she's doing something important in London than as daddy is in the hospital. 
and you show them that daddy cooks and cleans and wipes their bums and does the washing and can sing them to sleep. And so if you want them to be the people you're trying to raise them to be, you have to model that. And they, you can, it doesn't matter what you teach them, it's what they see you doing. And so I think that modeling is as important as anything else. And if you want them to grow up believing that genders are equal, they have to see equality. And so it's another reason to put the effort in. Very well said. I feel I have to point out, though, both children do still get a bit scared if they see Tom driving. <laughs> and I'm sure when they are teenagers, they really will go, will say that the only thing they want in life is a very traditional relationship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, going, they're going to rebel by being conservatives. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so we are coming to the end of our time together, very unfortunately. But I would like you to think of the people who are listening who do have currently lopsided caring relationships for whatever reason and and they want to change that perhaps one partner is doing all the childcare and the other one is is the helper outer or babysitter in a relationship is there something practical that those two could do together this week to get started to rebalance things if that's what they choose to do I think I already spoke about for us something that ended up being really meaningful was just almost doing an audit of who was doing what and are we happy with that and is that what we want but I think also I'd say that amongst kind of mothers there can be a place of not comfort but a place of familiarity of lambasting your slightly useless partner you know it can be it can feel very normal and very familiar to be, oh, God, I've got to go home and do this because my husband's so useless, he won't. And it's very easy to fall into that. But is that what you want? You know, is that, for me, when we have sometimes fallen slightly into that place, that isn't what I want. Even though day to day, that might be what feels easier or is the narrative you hear coming from other people. I didn't fall in love with a man who was slightly incompetent. You know, I fell in love with a highly capable feminist and I want our relationship to be that. And, you know, conversations on that are really difficult and really hard and are not easy. But if that's what you want, have a conversation to break you out of that narrative which sometimes you can fall into have a difficult conversation mm, and for me i think it's baby steps like there's very few things that you could like sit down in an evening and be like right brilliant crack on we're going to do this and it's going to get better um you know it's a bit like it's actually you know it's a bit like an exercise program you're not going to do much in a week that's going to transform your life and body but you can have almost a strategic conversation where you actually sit down and agree where you want to get to and I think a lot of it is just having some kind of true north that you've both agreed to and bought into, where you say, okay, we want to get to a place where we're like this. And that may not be completely balanced. We may not ever get to it. You know, we might, because of who we are, or what we want, we might never get to a point of complete equality or equity. But we want to get here, wherever here is, to this point. And that's going to take these trade-offs. So that might mean that as a family, we earn less. Because the high earner is going to have to do more childcare and the low earner is going to do more work. And that means that we're going to have to model that and think that through. And it means that our five-year earning potential is less. 
And are we prepared to live in a different house to facilitate that? Are we prepared to not get a new car? Are we prepared to not go on holiday for that? Or you're going to say, look, you know, we've got all these bits to disentangle about who does this and who does that. You're going to have to learn to do some cooking. And that might mean you learn to cook one dish and we have it every Wednesday. But that's what we're going to do every Wednesday until it becomes habit. And then I think you've started to just nudge your way through those really complicated, meaty things that you have to get to. But without the shared strategy, if you haven't got that model of what you're pitching for, it's really hard to steer those day-by-day decisions to end up where you want to be. So, I mean, I think we did it as part of the Leaders Plus course. That vision, what do we want life to look like in five years' time? What do we want our kids to be like? What do we want our kids to see when they look at their parents? If you got that straight and you agree on it, you'll find a way little by little to get there. But without it, you'll end up astray. And also it might change. Yeah. It's okay if it changes because you're going to revisit it and it might be what you thought you want, you didn't, and you're going to alter it. Yeah. But having, like if you think with your work hat on, if you were at work, you know, if Tom started an operation on someone without agreeing with the surgeon that they're actually in there for the same operation, that would go <laughs> badly wrong. You know, in my work, if I start on a a partnership campaign and I haven't agreed what the objectives of it are, that's not going to end well. So if you put your work head into your relationship and your family, for your joint project that is your family and your children, what's your objective for that project? What's your vision for that project? Because you wouldn't undertake anything else in your work life without having agreed that at the onset. Very well said. Thank you both so much for sharing your story so openly. Um, If anyone wants to connect with you or find out more about your work, where, if anywhere, would you like them to go? So probably the most obvious places I'm on LinkedIn, Catherine Muge on LinkedIn. Other social media, I think I'm I'm less prolific or or I think possibly a little less easy to find. But yeah, LinkedIn, best place for me. Yeah, I'm reasonably easy to find through Google and the University of Cambridge. People are very welcome to contact me if at all useful. Thank you so much both. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed the podcast and you think a non-judgmental community of support would be really helpful to you, then I would love to hear from you as an application to the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program. As you know properly, this is designed to help you to identify where you want your career to head and will give you lots of support and encouragement along the way. And then most importantly, to help you make it possible to get there practically whilst being present with your family in whatever way you want that to be. Previous fellows have said it made them take really courageous steps that they never thought possible and also that they made lifelong friends and connections. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the programme and that's particularly impressive because most of them work part-time or flexibly. Plus, I think they've all got quite mavericky in a good way. They're all involved in some shape or form of driving wider change for working parents, be that mentoring other parents, be that changing policy in their organisations, whatever fits at that moment in their lives. It only takes about half a day a week. Uh, Sorry, (laughs) that would be a lot. Half a day a month. So I think it's more than doable. It's been designed with parents in mind. You can find all the details on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash cross-sector fellowship. The application deadline for this upcoming cross-sector cohort is 7th of March. And also, if you want us to talk to your employer, to your organization about offering this to their employees, i.e. you, then let me know and my colleague Joe or I can have a conversation with them. My email is verina at leadersplus.org.uk. 
On a completely unrelated note, I also feel passionate about gender equality in podcasting. And I've recently learned that the top, you know, 100 podcasts, etc., is extremely male-dominated. I think 90% male-dominated or something like that, depending on what's that you look at. And I thought that needs to change urgently. So if you want to help and <laughs> push forward female-led podcasts, then first of all, listen and share female-led podcasts. And if you think this podcast is is good and useful, then also do share that, leave reviews and do all those things that increases the algorithm's prominence. So yeah, for example, a WhatsApp or signal message to some friends with a link to the podcast is always very welcome and very helpful. And hopefully it will help us smash this particular glass ceiling up in the podcast world. See you next week and thank you so much for your support.